to Titus chapter 2. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardbound one somewhere around you. And today's passage can be found on page 998. Uh, for those of you that have not met me, my name is Chad and I have the privilege of serving as a pastor here. And um, just as we were, um, as Chuck was speaking and talking about gospel Dreams. Uh, as we begin this new series, it, it just hit me all of a sudden. I remember uh, it's probably been close to 15 years now. I remember uh, I was converted in the state of Virginia, and I remember God's mercy coming on my life in just a real and a powerful way. And um, beginning to understand things about God, beginning to understand things about his grace and how much he actually loves people. And I, I remember just at that moment wanting and hoping and believing someday just to be able to have the privilege of doing that uh, in my home state of Arkansas. And so uh, just in a fresh way, um, just struck by God's faithfulness and his kindness um, that I have this privilege just to be here um, among friends, among people that I love uh, and able to open up God's word. That is his kindness. That's his faithfulness. So uh, just delighted that you all are here. And uh, yeah, we're going to begin a a new series this morning called Commissioned. Uh, We're going to begin over the next five to seven weeks or so, just begin to look at the things uh, that uniquely make us who we are as a church. And as we do that, I want to um, bring you into a story from the best-selling book, Start With Why, uh, by Simon Sinek. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that title, but um, he tells the story. He says, imagine um, that there are two stonemasons. They are building a wall, and you go up to one stonemason, and you ask him, Hey, do you like your job? And he says, well, I don't know. He said, I've been doing this kind of as long as I can remember. Um, you know, these stones are kind of heavy, and the weather can be hot, you know, uh, but it pays the bills, right? So that's one perspective of one stonemason, and then you go down the wall about 30 feet, and you ask another stonemason, you say, hey, do you like your job? And he's like, are you kidding me? I'm building a cathedral, right? He's a I know that the hours can be long, uh, these stones can be heavy, but I'm doing something that's going to last beyond my lifetime. I get the privilege of building a cathedral. I'm sure you can kind of see the difference between those two things, the difference of perspective, right? And what Simon Sinek is hitting on is the power of vision. Right, So we're going to talk about um, the vision of our church because we don't want to just merely exist. right? We don't want to eke out an existence. We actually want to be able to live our lives as individuals and to live our lives as a church with passion and with joy and with faith and with expectancy. Right? Passion, I mean, vision is the difference between truly living and just merely existing. Right? Vision is the difference between just living life as uh, a series of disconnected events and finding your purpose and your meaning in God's greater story, 
right? We as a church are passionate about you finding your purpose, the reason that God put you on the planet to live as a part of his story, to come alive to who he's made you to be. And so this series is called Commissioned, and it's certainly... um, We get that title from the Great Commission. I mean, there's the idea that Jesus, when he was resurrected from the dead and he was ascending into heaven, he gave this commission that his church and his people were to be about the the job of making disciples of all the nations, right? Teaching them to observe everything that he had commanded. Like, that's the, the call of all Christians and that's the call of all churches, right? But that has to look like something, right? It looks different in Jonesboro, Arkansas than it does in Yugoslavia, right? So there's different ways to articulate the same passionate message of Christianity. And so we're going to look at what uniquely makes us Fellowship Bible Church. What are the things that we're going to treasure, right? What are the things that we want to fight to experience together? What are the things that we uniquely think that God has called us to bring to the city, right? What are the things that are going to define us? How are they going to shape our experience here in Sunday worship, right? If you are involved in a gospel community, what are the things that are going to dominate your perspective there? Those are the things that we're going to look at over the next several weeks, Ray Ortland, in his book called The Gospel, says this. He says, Every generation must pick up their Bibles and rediscover the gospel afresh for themselves and rearticulate the ancient message in their own words for their own times. Then he goes on to say, The need of our times is nothing less than the re-Christianization of our churches according to the gospel alone, in both doctrine and culture. So we're going to talk about things that we learn about Jesus and then how that shapes our culture here as a church by Christ himself. And he says, nothing less than the beauty of Christ will suffice today. Though what a renewed church will look like might at present lie beyond our imagination. So... There's going to be some real practical things in this series, but we're going to press our imaginations into what God actually intends for the church. What does it mean for us to begin to be able to communicate the ancient truths of Scripture in a way that make a difference in our lives and help us fulfill our mission to reach our city here locally, but not only that, to the end of the earth. Like, So the goal of this series is for everyone in the room to be able to say if if you find this to be your church home and your church family like if somebody on the street said hey what's fellowship bible church all about that you could answer them right i mean and i've done this before because when i first got here they're like so what's fellowship all about i was like well um i guess we believe in fellowship and it's a bible church so we have the bible right it's deeper than that, right? So we want to have some, some ways where we can come around the message of Jesus Christ. And the first thing you'll see up on the sideboards there is our core belief that grace changes everything. We believe 
from the bottom of our heart that this is the core of our message and this will shape everything that we do. Like this idea changes every marriage in the room. This idea changes the way that we live our lives. This changes the way that we go to our jobs on Monday morning. This message literally changes everything. So if you have your Bibles open to Titus chapter 2, would you stand with me as we read verses 11 through 14? We hear about the idea that grace changes everything. Verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just the privilege of opening up your word once again. Thank you that um, this book is unlike any other. Um, It has something to say to us, that it's living and it's active. And I pray um, that the truths of Titus chapter 2 would be um, just written on our hearts and it would make a difference how we live out our lives um, as people and as a church. Uh, To do that, we need you to send the power of the Holy Spirit. This isn't natural for us. Um, We actually need you to change us from the inside out. So I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would empower me. You know my weakness. You know my limitations. But I pray that your power would stand strong in my weakness. Lord, for the sake and the fame of Jesus in this city and around the world. Amen. Okay. Grace changes everything. So, Titus chapter 2, one of the reasons that I love this chapter and these verses in particular is because they give us a fresh perspective of what grace is. Um, but almost even more importantly, because like this is a kind of becomes like Christianese, right? Where people don't understand really what this actually word means. It kind of becomes a junk drawer that means everything. Um, Titus chapter 2 actually helps us to understand what grace isn't, right? It's going to clear up some common misconceptions of what grace is not, right? So um, this letter is written to Titus who kind of came into the island of Crete. And if you know anything about uh, the culture of the New Testament, these people were world famous sinners, right? I mean, they were proud of their immorality. You can look at chapter one. It says that they were liars. They were lazy gluttons. They were evil beasts. Like that's how they describe themselves, right? They, they had a harshness about themselves. They were excited about their lifestyle. But in a moment, the message of God's grace broke into their lives, like literally overnight, 
and their lives were changed and a church was born. They went from pagans to a church plant absolutely overnight. And so um, if, if you can imagine Jonesboro, right, the, the seediest part of town, like I don't exactly know where that is, but I mean, it would be like going to the seediest part of town, right? Pimps and prostitutes and meth addicts. And somehow in the midst of all of that, the message of Jesus comes and they're changed in an instant and they form a church. Like that's what's going on in the island of Crete. And so you can imagine like that kind of scenario. There's going to be a little bit of confusion, right? There's going to be a little bit of um, a reason for some order. And that's why Paul wrote the letter to Titus basically to say, hey, this is where you start, right? So the, the way that this church was going to be established and the way that this church was going to grow was going to be through the message of God's unchanging grace. What was going to bring chaos into order was the message of God's grace. Like, grace changed everything for the people at Crete. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, grace changes everything for you. It's God's grace that is the cornerstone of our message as Christians. Like, if we miss this, this is kind of like the top button on the the shirt. Like if you, if you miss this, you miss everything, right? This is the issue uh, on which the church stands or falls. And this is the really, this is the way that we stand and we fall is by our comprehension of God and his amazing grace. So let's dig in. What does this passage teach us about grace? Number one, grace is a person. Grace is a person. Look at verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Grace was seen. Grace appeared. Grace came into view. And there's no more important idea for all of humanity than the idea that grace has appeared and grace is a person. Grace is a person and his name is Jesus. And because grace has appeared, we have every reason to believe this morning. Because grace has appeared, we have every reason to hope. We have every reason to live all of our lives with passion and with urgency and with a sense of belonging and a sense of meaning. Because God stepped in out of eternity into time and he took on flesh and walked among us because grace appeared. It literally changes everything for us this morning. So grace has appeared. Grace is a person And his name is Jesus. So it's important to understand that grace is a person because this means grace is not some impersonal force, right? This isn't a little bit of extra to kind of get you over the top. This is not where God meets you halfway, right? This is God taking on flesh, right? This isn't about good people getting better. This is about God taking on flesh to rescue his people. This isn't about good people being made better. This is about dead people being made alive. 
Grace is a person and his name is Jesus. This means that God is not distant. This means that God is not uninvolved or uncaring. This means that God cares enough about the world. And more importantly for everyone in this room, God cares enough to enter into the mess. God cares enough to send his very own son into the chaos of our own lives to bring us life and to rescue us. Grace is personal. Grace is real. Grace came for lonely people, right? So many people in this room, like if you peeled away the layers, you're lonely. Jesus took notice of people that no one else noticed. Grace came for lonely people. Grace came for broken people. Grace came for hopeless people to say that God has not quit on you. That God has not given up on you. So much so that he sent his own son into the world. Grace not only took on flesh, but grace was nailed to a cross. He bled out and died on the cross. Grace was buried in the tomb. And as we sang in this song this morning, grace rose again and grace lives so that there is hope for all of humanity and there's hope for everyone in this room that your story can be different this morning because of Jesus. And it's all for love's sake. Grace loves you. I'm going to say it again. Grace loves you. The real you. Not the you that you post on social media. Right? Not the you that you want to be. The you that's going to have it together in 10 years. Not the you that finally God will love you when you lose all the weight that you want. Right? God loves the real you. That's the good news of grace being a person. You don't have to hide. You don't have to pretend. He came for people that didn't have it all together. He entered the mess and he entered the chaos to say, grace loves people. And more importantly for us, grace loves you. Grace changes everything. Grace changes how we view God. Right? No longer do we have to view God primarily as judge and as lawgiver. Right? We get to view Him as Father, as Savior, as Redeemer, as Deliverer, as the giver of hope to the hopeless. Grace changes how we view God, but it also changes how we view ourselves. No longer will we be defined by what we think about ourselves, whether good or bad. No longer will we be defined by what other people have spoken into our lives. We're defined by what God says about us. And he says, you're worth coming for. You're worth dying for. You're worth me giving everything to bring you into my family. That's what's true. Grace changes how we view God. Grace changes how we view ourselves. And grace changes how we view the world, right? This obliterates distinctions. No longer are we going to be a group of people that makes distinctions between people in here and people out there. These are people that are all in need of grace. People that are all in need of a Savior. So this levels the playing field. What God says about us and what God says about the world, right? 
John 3.16, the same book that I read from Ray Ortland. He says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Notice that emphasis of that word. He so loved, right? It's not just he gave us a little bit of love. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. So grace changes everything. Grace is a person, right? Because grace is a person, this means grace is personal, right? This isn't like um, Willy Wonka and getting a, a magical golden ticket to heaven, right? Grace is more than that. Grace meets you and rescues you right where you are today. So I don't know what you're here and what you're facing, but the truth of the matter is God's rescue is personal. God's rescue is specific and God's rescue is eternal. Now, when I say grace is personal, that means it's supposed to meet you where you are. And I'll just bring you into something from my own life this week. I mean, I was sitting down and I was having lunch with Chuck, um, which I do normally at least a couple times a month. And um, we had a, a really good time just talking and dreaming. But there's a point usually where I let him know how I'm doing in my soul. Like, hey, this is what's going on in my life. And I mean, I just, I just went down the list and said, yeah, uh, here's, here's where pride exists. Here's where selfishness exists. Here's where unbelief exists. And, you know, I went on for quite some time and actually was pretty discouraged about the condition of my own heart. And this is, this is where grace becomes personal, right? Because that's a tender moment to just acknowledge like, hey, I don't have it all together. So I hope that frees you. You have a pastor that doesn't have it all together. And in that moment, he said, he said, we want to, we want to be faithful to change the conversation from your performance to Christ's performance on your behalf. Grace changes everything. And you know what happened in that moment? Like my love for Jesus and my appreciation that I had a savior that bled out and died. He didn't die for theoretical sins. He died for everything that I was feeling guilty and condemned about, right? And, th- and that's what we want every person in this church to be able to experience. Um, in Episcopalian circles, I mean, they have um, just this idea of absolution, right? They confess their sins, but there's a moment where somebody speaks to the end of their sin and says, I want you to know that this is finally and fully paid for by the blood of Jesus. Now, we don't do that, but I think the idea of absolution needs to take place more and more inside the church where you really do know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's finished for you, that he paid from all of your, for all of your sins from beginning to end. So grace is a person and grace is personal. So what do you need this morning? Where do you need to find assurance? Where do you need to find rest? Take courage grace has come in the flesh. Grace came to rescue you. So grace is not an impersonal force, but grace is God come in the flesh to save us. Now, let's listen to this quote from um, Preston Sprinkle. This is, this is what it begins to, to mean to us as we begin to live by God's grace. He says this, grace, on the other hand, means that God is pursuing you, right? He's not far off. That God forgives you, that God sanctifies you. When you are apathetic towards God, have you been there this week? Maybe there right now. He is never apathetic towards you. 
When you don't desire to pray and talk to God, he never grows tired of talking to you. When you forget to read your Bible and listen to God, he's always listening to you. Grace means that your spirituality is held up by God's stubborn enjoyment of you. So we should learn to speak of our spirituality in the passive voice. Not as someone who acts primarily, but primarily as someone who has been acted upon by God who defines himself as the one who justifies the ungodly. Right? Grace changes everything. That means that this is primarily about God. This is primarily about his rescue. And it changes how we view God and it changes how we view ourselves, and it changes how we view the world. So grace is a person. Point number two, grace is power. Let's look at verses 12 through 14. Says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So a common misunderstanding of grace is grace produces passive people and grace produces lazy people. Have you ever heard that? Like, I mean, if grace is really true, how are you ever going to get people to do anything, right? You've got to put the fear of God in them to actually get something done. Well, according to Titus chapter 2, that nothing could be further than the truth. You know, the way that you grow and the way that you change, it says grace teaches us. Grace instructs us. And as grace, as we become students of grace, like there's real power that's unleashed in our lives that actually helps us to say no to ungodliness, right? Our view of God is directly tied to how we change. Like if you view God as some far off, harsh tyrant looking to squash you at any opportunity, that's going to affect how you live your life. But if you view him as gracious and as merciful It's going to train you to say no to ungodliness. Listen to this quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the the best preacher of the 19th century. This is what he said. He said, when I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I ever could have rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. The way that we view God, the way that we view grace is the key to change, right? The same message that saves us is the same message that changes us. This is powerful because this isn't primarily about our willpower. This isn't primarily about a to-do list. This isn't primarily about us making promises and vows to God. This is about us coming alive to what God has given us in and through Jesus. That's what changes, right? And this, that's why it's important, like the background of the church at Crete. Like um, a few weeks before, like all of these people were sleeping together, right? 
So now they're in small group and they actually need real power and real healing for change. So this message of grace that we're talking about, it's big enough to meet you where you are. If it's big enough for this church, it's big enough for us. And so what does he remind them of? What does he want them to know? Where's the power come from? Well, first he reminds them of what Christ has done in the past. Verse 14 says that he has redeemed us from all lawlessness. So he reminds them of what Christ did in the past. And then he reminds them of what awaits them in the future. Verse 13, as they wait for their blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if you don't hear anything else I say today, this above all things is what makes Fellowship Bible Church different, right? This is the only way to change in the Bible is to remember what Christ has done in the past and to look forward to our blessed hope in the future, right? It's not about you. It's not about your willpower. It's not about your promises. It's about taking who we are and remembering what he's done. And I promise you, the more and more you think about what he's done for you and what awaits you one day, it changes you here And now there are not a million ways to change in the Christian life. There is one way and it's seeing Jesus Christ, right? So over the summer, like we went through this interview process and I I must have talked and seen 20 to 25 individuals, pastors from around the country that wanted to be a part of that church. That amazes me that they wanted to come here. But this is the question. That I asked them. This was the one that says, will they be a good fit here? And that's why Aaron is here. I asked them, how do people change? And if it was, because nothing will squelch a culture of grace more than do more and try harder, right? Because most of the time, like if you've ever been in an accountability session, like we're not against that. But if you walk away with a to-do list that looks like, hey, You should read your Bible more. You should pray more. You should do this more. Are those things helpful for the Christian life? Absolutely. Are they the way that you change? Absolutely not. You change by seeing who Jesus is and seeing that by faith. And as you see that by faith, it actually changes you. But the reason that there is so much burnout and so much just performance-based Christianity in the South is this issue of believing how people actually change. Listen to this quote from Mockingbird. It says, American Christianity is now in crisis, in large part because people have marketed it as a religion of good people getting better, church in the South, when in fact it is a religion of bad people coping with their failure to be good. The idea that we can always improve ourselves and attain our goals is not a harmless misconception, but instead lies near the root of much burnout, disillusionment, resentment, and religious recession. So, that is America, right? If I work hard enough and I apply myself enough, it's going to happen, right? And that thinking has made its way into the church. And the result is a lot of people 
right? When we confuse that we change us instead of believing that God's the one that changes us, it makes a huge difference, right? And it kind of terminates on ourselves and we experience burnout. Um, What we're talking about is the doctrine of sanctification. And historically, it's been defined as um, 100% God changing us and 100% of our effort. And I've always heard that. I believe that. But what people have failed to do historically in the church is to tell you, what do you do with your 100% effort? Where do you focus your effort? You focus your effort on remembering that you've been redeemed from all lawlessness. You focus your effort on waiting for your hope, and it makes all the difference here and now. Grace is our teacher. Grace is power. So yes, the Christian life requires effort, but that effort is spent primarily remembering and believing afresh, and it changes our actions. Okay, which brings us to our final point. Grace is fuel. Grace is fuel. We believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. But that grace never remains alone. Not only does it not fuel passivity towards ourselves and towards our growth as a Christian, it also does not produce passivity towards the world. Look at verse 14. Look at the effect of grace and how it fuels our missionary efforts to our city and to the world. It says, Who gave himself... And that's Jesus, who is grace, for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And this is the part to pick up. And to purify for himself a people, that's the church, for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So grace does not make for passive Christians. Grace does not make for apathetic Christians. Grace produces an inward zeal. Passion is a synonym, right? And so when we grow apathetic towards the world, the, 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 the way to look at it is our love has grown cold. Our appreciation of God's grace has grown cold. And the way that we fuel our missionary effort, the most missional thing that we can do as a church is to remind ourselves of what Christ has already done, right? Because as you're enjoying and living in the good of all that God has done for you, it actually motivates you to want to see that happen in the lives of other people. So God's plan A for us to change and grow as a church and God's plan A for us to reach the world centers us on the message that grace changes everything. And and the reason I love Titus is because, I mean, we're going to talk about this in the coming weeks. We are passionate about church planting and we are passionate about reaching the hurting and the broken in our city. But if you look at the book of Titus, this zeal for good works is very ordinary, right? It's starting a family, being zealous to pass on the good news from one generation to another. The zeal for good works includes having a healthy marriage. The zeal for good works affects 
having a job and how you go to work, right? These zeal, it takes place, is, is very ordinary. So it also can be these dynamic works of God, but it also are these very ordinary things for us. Pursuing unity in the local church, loving and serving in the local church, raising children, right? How many people, I mean, honestly, because if we miss this, um, most people feel like there's no place for them in church, right? So um, if, if you don't do something dynamic, like speak on a stage or write a Bible study, like really, what is there for us to do? Well, the book of Titus tells us that everything kind of comes under the lordship of Jesus and everything matters. Listen to this quote from Zach Eswine in his book, Sensing Jesus. He says, Every moment of obscure service makes the hall of fame in heaven. It means everything. This means that everybody, no matter what color, what economic reality, what gender, or what position they have or will never have in this life can do something great for God. So, we want every person in this room to feel like they have a part to play, but we want everyone in this room to also believe that every moment counts. Every moment is an opportunity to bear testimony and witness to the truth of this message of God's grace. So whether it's in the workplace or going to school, these are opportunities for us to zealously do good works in the name of Jesus, right? Jesus actually wants us to be passionate about our lives. This isn't um, a function of personality, right? Zeal It looks different in different people, but he wants you to love your station in life. He wants you to be able to live your everyday normal life with passion and with vision. And he wants you to see it all connected to this big story of God's grace and in Jesus Christ. So the extraordinary growth that we want to see in church planting and we want to see in the world, it's normally the effect of ordinary, zealous living. So... As you go to your gospel community this week and you participate and you don't want to actually make the the time to do that, but you show up and you take the time to ask somebody how they're doing more than surface level and you connect with them, right? You, You have an opportunity to model and demonstrate this message of God's grace. Everything that we do this week is an opportunity for us to come alive to what he's already done. God wants all of our lives to matter and all of them to count. He entered into our story so that we could become part of his story. And that's what we're going to look at over the next several weeks. And so I just want to leave you with this thought. Grace really does change everything. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for sending your son to die on our behalf. Thanks for his love for us. I pray that you would help us to truly believe what you say about us. I pray that you would really help us to come into contact with grace, that it would change the broken places in our lives. It would give us real power for growth. I pray that you would help us to be fueled for your mission by the message of God's grace. In Jesus' name, amen.